you have your Bibles, you can open them with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33. Jeremiah, chapter 33. Last week, we finished a five-sermon series from the book of Ruth. Ruth ends, the book of Ruth ends with, with a statement something like this. Ruth and Boaz had a son named Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. And so the book of Ruth concludes anticipating a king, anticipating the greatest king that Israel had in the Old Testament. It's a fitting place for us to end before Thanksgiving and launch into the Christmas season because in the Christmas season, if you go back into the Old Testament, all of the passages dealing with, or almost all of the passages dealing with, with the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament identify him as a new King David, as someone who will be in the line or the family tree of David. This morning, I want to begin a, a Christmas series entitled, It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Christmas. When you think about what Christmas looks like, what, what comes to your mind? What do you think Christmas looks like? Some people think that Christmas looks like uh, wreaths and holly, uh, combinations of red and green. Some people mix in some sound effects, the jingling of bells, the sound of uh, gifts being unwrapped, from under a tree on Christmas morning. Some people believe that Christmas looks like a red suit with white trim. What does Christmas look like? I ironically, none of those colors and none of those scenes is found in Scripture. Scripture paints a different picture of Christmas. It's a more powerful picture of Christmas. It's a much deeper, broader, higher picture of Christmas and you have to really go back into the Old Testament to begin the story. Most of the time we want to begin with Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 3. But really you have to go back to the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament prepares the ground for the sprouting of the Christmas event, which is the coming of Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 33, Jeremiah picks up where Ruth left off. Ruth leaves us anticipating King David. Jeremiah comes uh, centuries after King David, but he anticipates another type of king who will come from the line of David. Jeremiah 33, beginning with verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and 
to present sacrifices. If I were to ask Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, the major prophets, if they were standing before us today and we said, guys, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, what does Christmas look like to you? I think that one of the things that all three of them would say is that Christmas uh, doesn't look exactly like we have painted it. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with, with all the different ways that we've painted Christmas, but I believe they would paint it in different colors. Emil Bruner, the Swiss theologian, said this. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. I believe that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel would say, hope is what Christmas looks like. Uh, I teach a, a Bible class on Thursday nights at uh, one of the local colleges, and sometimes I will teach an Old Testament class. It's a survey of the Old Testament. And in eight weeks, the students have to read the entire Old Testament. They complain about it. And, uh, but you know how uh, teachers are. They don't listen to anything. And so you say, go ahead and read it. And they do pretty well. Genesis, Exodus, I mean, they really build up steam going through Genesis and Exodus. They really get bogged down in Leviticus. It's almost like quicksand. But if they can make it through Leviticus and even Deuteronomy, uh, then all of a sudden they get into Joshua and Judges and, and they're able to kick into overdrive again because those books are kind of fun to read and, and you just glide right through Ruth and, and your heart is just soothed as you run through Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Then you start bogging down again in Lamentation. And then you get into Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let me tell you, a lot of college students in Old Testament die a slow death in Isaiah and Jeremiah. They just kind of go to sleep in the Lord right then and there. It's real hard because it's hard reading. Uh, and, and it doesn't get much better when you get into those last little 12 books, the, what we call the minor prophets, because you get into those and it just seems like it's just gloom and doom. Find that there's, there seems to be so little hope. It's kind of like oxygen up in the high altitudes. The oxygen gets thin in high altitudes harder to breathe. And let me tell you something. If you, can, if you can force yourself through Isaiah and into Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, what, what you're actually doing, even though the oxygen, the hope seems to get thin, you're climbing into high altitudes. Because those guys were inspired in a, in a way that, is, that, that far exceeds anything that you'll read today because they were climbing the highest peaks. They were in the Mount Everest of a relationship with God. I've noticed when you read those three books especially, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, these great minor, uh, major prophets, you'll, you'll, you'll see three observations that I think are uh, applicable for us in our day. The first thing that you'll notice about the, each of these three major prophets is that they, they spoke and they wrote during times that were dire. A dire situation is what they wrote in. I was thinking about Isaiah. If you look at the book of Isaiah, you have 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters deal with the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom in the uh, 700s B.C. 
The latter uh, 27 chapters of Isaiah deal with the Babylonian invasion of Judah in 587-586 B.C. And so here you have this great prophet Isaiah who's writing in one period about that period but also forecasting, uh, forecasting information about a later period and he's writing whichever period you want to deal with, it's a dire situation. If you know your history, and I know you do, you know that when, when the northern kingdom of Israel, those, those, those ten northern tribes were invaded by Assyria, and they were carried away into Assyrian captivity, they were destroyed. They never returned. When the Babylonians in 587 came into Judah, they took the, the, the cream of the crop of the population, leaving only those who... who uh, were welfare cases to them behind, took the rest of the population 800 miles away into Babylon, and there they were for 70 years in captivity. These were dire situations. When Ezekiel wrote his, uh, his uh, book of prophecy, he was in Babylon, he was a captive in Babylon the entire time that he wrote. It was a dire situation. When Jeremiah wrote, he lived right around 590, 585, B.C., and he prophesied that the Babylonians would come in. In fact, he even encouraged the people to surrender to the Babylonians, which wasn't a very popular message. People thought he was a traitor. They thought he was a spy. Even his own family tried to turn him over to authorities, and he was arrested, put in prison, because they thought he was a spy for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Jeremiah lived to see Jerusalem destroyed and the people taken away captive. He was among the ones left behind. And the people who left, were left behind, they left Jerusalem, took Jeremiah with him down to Egypt. And that was the last we hear of Jeremiah. These three prophets, they spoke during times that were dire. There were dire situations. We hear a lot of talk today about our economic crisis. And how it's affected everything. It really has. It's affected uh, churches. It's affected families. It's affected jobs. It's affected retirements. It's affected bank accounts. It's affected paychecks. No doubt about it. Uh, retailers are, are watching with heavy scrutiny uh, how shoppers act during this holiday season. Whether or not this last 30, 35 days of this year will, will somehow bring miraculously this economy out of the oblivion that it's been living in for the past year and a half. And of course it won't. Dire situation. But I'll tell you, we've not lived in dire situations like what Isaiah did. We do not even know the crises that Jeremiah experienced. We don't know what it's like to live in a captivity, not like what Ezekiel lived. They wrote in times that were dire, dire situations. Isaiah said in chapter 11 of Isaiah, he said a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. You ever gone through the woods, come up on a stump? I mean a stump uh, that, where the tree has just been shaved clear off that stump, almost level to the ground. Do you know what the chances are that that stump will sprout anew? Virtually nil. It's not impossible, but it's virtually nil that that pine tree that was so high, 50 feet up in the air, when it's chopped off at the base, almost impossible that it will sprout anew. 
And Isaiah said, he looked at his situation and he said, this is like a stump. No hope. But he said, out of that stump of no hope, there will be a sprout that has David's name on it. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is in captivity and God takes him in a vision, shows him a valley. He says, Ezekiel, what do you see in this valley? And it was filled with dry bones. Picture uh, Auschwitz. Picture a concentration camp. Many years later, decades later, you go back and archaeologists dig up and they find piles of bones where a mass grave was. That's what Ezekiel saw. And God says, what do you see? He said, he said I see bones. And they are very dry bones. You ever traipsed through the woods and found a dry bone? Maybe a dog bone or the bone of a deer that was shot or hit by a car, ran deep in the woods and died somewhere out there with nobody else around. And, and some years later, you might walk up on it and you just see the bones. You know what the chances are that those bones will rise up and start running through the woods again? It's not going to happen. Ezekiel saw his situation as a valley of dry bones, a pile of bones. And yet God said, I will breathe life into those bones. Jeremiah, when he was uh, looking at his situation, he saw uh, a stump. He saw, a, he saw uh, hopelessness. So much so that in one place he left and he cried out and he says, I wish that my eyes were a fountain of waters so that I could cry day and night for my people Israel. He had lost the ability to cry. He had lost the ability to cry. One of my best friends is a senior adult lady who's a member of this church who for health reasons has lost the ability to produce tears. And she will email me. And sometimes when we have a service where it's very moving, she, she's afraid that I've noticed that she's not crying, and she will email me, and she will say, I just wanted you to know, you know my situation. I'm not able to produce tears, but she said, I was crying on the inside. And Jeremiah had lost his ability to produce tears. These three great prophets, thinking ahead, they wrote in dire situations. Number, number the, the second observation you'll notice when you study these three books is this, that they were called upon to perform some illogical acts. Illogical acts. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when the Lord called Isaiah into the ministry, he told him, he, he, he said, your sin is purged. It's washed away. And Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord calling. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah raised his hand. He says, here am I. Send me. And God begins giving him his instructions as to what he'll say. Chapter 6. God says, make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Isaiah closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isn't that an unusual command? You'd think that, Isaiah, uh, that God would say to Isaiah, I want you to go preach to these people. 
so that their eyes will be open, their, their ears will be able to hear, and their hearts will turn back to me. That's what I would expect God to say, but that's not what God said. He said, I want you to go preach, Isaiah. But he said, I want you to know, what I want you to do is to make their hearts leather. Close their eyes. Stop up their ears. Because Isaiah, if they're able to hear, they might turn and be healed. And that's not, that's not what I'm commanding you to do. It was illogical. It was crazy. Sometimes God, what God asks us to do doesn't make sense, ladies and gentlemen. Now, God's ultimate goal was the redemption of his people, but that's not what it sounded like in his command to Isaiah. Or what about Ezekiel? God tells Ezekiel, he says, he says I want you to go and I want you to lay on your left side for, for, for 390 straight days. And then I want you to lay on your right side for 40 days. Why am I doing that? I want you to lay on your side over a year and two months because of the sin of my people. And I want you to symbolize through your laying on your side the death that their sin has produced. How would you like to do that? You're talking about bed sores? Man, oh man. Did he really do that? The Bible says he did. It was illogical. It didn't make sense. I mean, after laying on your side, either your right or your left side, most of the time your left side, for over a year straight. Can you imagine when he finally got up? He probably had to learn to walk all over again. Probably had to learn how to keep his balance all over again. Probably learned, had to learn how to use his hands and his arms all over again. Illogical acts I read to you Jeremiah 33 which talked about a dire situation Jeremiah living in Judah he's about to see Jerusalem destroyed he already has told them he said now I don't care what these other prophets have told you Babylon is about to come in here and they're going to destroy Jerusalem they surrounded the city for two years wouldn't let any food go in and wouldn't let anybody go out you can imagine what it was like. You're talking about soaring food prices. You're talking about an economic crisis. Just right there in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And the Bible said that Jeremiah went to him. He says, you need to surrender. You really do because they're going to come in here and destroy everything. And here's what God told Jeremiah to do. Now think about this. You're within, you're within 60 days of having your entire homeland destroyed by an enemy and invaded and taken control of. And so here's what God says to Jeremiah. I want you to go buy a piece of property near Jerusalem. What? I want you to go buy some property. That's Jeremiah 32. You can read it. God told him to go buy a piece of property. Man, that's the last thing you'd do if you knew that within 60 days you're about to be invaded because that'd just be a waste of your money. It'd be a waste of your time. But God says, I want you to go buy the property. Why? Because I'm going to do something. They prophesied during dire situations. In the process, God commanded them to perform some very illogical acts. But the third observation that you can see in, when you read these three great prophets is this, that in all three, in spite of, of these dire situations, more dire than we've ever known, 
in spite of those, God offers through them to the people promises of hope. Isaiah is writing in the 700s B.C., 700 years before Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 7, he said, There will be a child that will be born of a virgin woman, and you will call his name. He shall be called Emmanuel, which is in Hebrew, God is with us. That's 700 years before the fact. In Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, we have what I believe is the most vivid description of Jesus on the cross that we have anywhere, and it's found not in the New Testament, not by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's found in Isaiah, that picture of the suffering servant. Isaiah said he will be bruised beyond recognition, not not so much people coming up and saying, I, I can't tell if that's Jesus. He says he'll be bruised beyond recognition as a human being. This is Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Centuries before Jesus arrived. But why is Isaiah telling the people this? He's saying because that suffering servant will be the savior of the world. All of our iniquities will be laid on him and through his stripes we will be healed. It was a promise of hope. When Ezekiel looked and saw those dead bones that he thought there was no hope of them being revived, the Bible says that as he was watching those dry bones in his vision, the Spirit of God came down and inhabited those bones, and all of a sudden flesh and muscle, sinew, developed uh, on those, grew on those bones, and they got up. And Ezekiel says, I saw an army of God marching out of that valley. What was he saying? That in the worst situations, with God, there is always hope. And there's Jeremiah. Jeremiah equated with Jesus. He was the weeping prophet. Jesus was a man of sorrows. It is about Jesus that the gospel writers tell us that he came to the tomb of Lazarus and he looked around and he saw Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and they were grieving and people all around the cemetery were grieving and the Bible says that Jesus looked around and he wept. I read an article, a whole article that was written recently, a long article about uh, these, these uh, supposedly smart people trying to describe, explain why Jesus wept. Listen, he wept because it was sad. Do you need anything more? He wept. He was a weeping prophet. But Jeremiah said that it's in this weeping prophet that we will have hope. He says, he says you see, the stump that Isaiah talked about, there is a sprout that will come up out of it. That sprout is out of the line of David and his name. His name is Jesus. Theologian J.I. Packer from Canada said this, he says, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor, was born in a stable, so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. What does Christmas look like? It looks like hope. Stephen Curtis Chapman has won more Dove Awards than any Christian artist in history. He's won 56 so far. Just came out with his, I think it's his 21st album. 
came out November the 3rd. It's entitled, Beauty Will Rise. Every single song on the album he wrote out of the deep pit of despair. Because on May 21st, 2008, his little girl, Maria, five years old, they had adopted her. She was out playing in the driveway, and his son went into their Toyota Land Cruiser, was backing out of the driveway and ran over her. They rushed her to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Stephen Curtis Chapman said in the months that ensued, he questioned everything he had ever believed. title cut on that album, Beauty Will Rise, has these words. It was the day the world went wrong. I screamed till my voice was gone. I watched through the tears as everything came crashing down. Slowly, panic turns to pain as we awake to what remains and sift through the ashes that are left behind. But buried deep beneath all of our broken dreams, we have these hope, this hope that out of these ashes, beauty will rise. You know where he got that? You know where he got that phrase, beauty for ashes? Beauty will rise out of ashes. You know where he got that? <laughs> he got it from these verses out of Isaiah. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and to comfort all that mourn. Verse 3, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them, here it is, beauty for ashes. What does Christmas look like? Does it look like a dire situation? Yeah. Does it call upon us to do some illogical things? Yeah. Trusting in God when you've lost your little girl, that's pretty illogical. What does Christmas look like? It looks like hope. That's what Christmas looks like. That's what Christmas looks like. Isaiah knew it. Ezekiel knew it. Jeremiah knew it. Matthew and Luke knew it. Mary knew it. Simon and Anna knew it. So many people didn't know it. Do you know it? Do you know that Christmas looks like hope? Do you know that? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a moment in your life when you realized that you were without Christ, that you'd never invited him into your heart, and that you needed to ask him to come into your life to be your Savior and Lord? Do you know him? If I ask you to raise your hand, and I'm not going to do this, but if I ask you to raise your hand, if there'd ever been a time in your life when you've received Christ as your Savior, could you really raise your hand? Or would you have to have the courage to keep your hand down because you know you don't know him? Or maybe you'd raise your hand, but you only did it because everybody around you had raised theirs and you didn't want to be left out. Do you know him? Do you have the hope 
that only Christ can bring, that sprouted out of that hopeless stump. Is your life like a stump this holiday season? Do you know the Lord? In a moment, we're going to stand and Matt's going to lead us in a song. Somebody here needs to come to this altar and invite Jesus into your heart. Somebody who's already saved needs to come and join this church and become a part of a local church family. Somebody in this church who is saved, you could tell me about, well, back in 1975, I, I walked the aisle and gave my life to Christ. You could talk about it and it'd be glorious, but not a whole lot has happened since then. If I were to ask you, what has the Lord done in your life since the day you were saved? You just have to drop your head. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to make a fresh new commitment. Not get saved again, but just make a fresh new commitment to Him. I can't think of a better gift for you to give yourself, your family, even the Lord, than to recommit your life to Him this year. You will not have a better gift. So where are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may Your Holy Spirit go through this congregation. There's some folks here in this place who feel like their lives is a valley of dry bones, like a stump that can never live again. Like a city that's been devastated. But Lord, you are the source of hope. And Lord, I pray that people in this place will discover the hope that Jesus brings. And I pray that they would discover it now. Lord, move in this time of invitation. Move, Lord. Move us off our steadfast places where we don't want to move. Move us. Get us to where you are. Lord, help us to own up to our situation, but not to be buried by it. Help us to do the illogical thing of trusting in something outside of ourselves when we don't see a reason to trust in anything. Lord, get us to the place of hope where you are. I pray that in Jesus' name. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.